it's a crucial way to get involved in the lives of others, get involved in the life of the church. And so if you haven't ever been a part of a growth group, we'd love for you to uh, to click into one this year. Happy to give you more information. Uh, the locations are on the back of the bulletin and happy to answer any questions about those. Uh, on Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Paul's letter, First uh, Corinthians, his uh, first letter to the church in Corinth. And we are in the midst of a fairly awkward section of the book because Paul is dealing with different issues relating to sexuality. But one of the things that I want to, and, and really that, that we want to see in this whole letter, is that the good news of Jesus redefines everything else about us. That the cross really does reshape and redefine everything. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that your life is continually redefined and reshaped by His good news. And that includes this topic of sexuality. And what we saw last week as we really dove into it, is how it's what Jesus has done that defines us. So uh, when I used to do youth ministry, you know, there's all kinds of different group games you would play. And one of the games that we would play... Uh, and we would play it so that you could divide your group up into teams as we handed everybody a card that had an, a farm animal on it. Okay? So if you wanted three groups, you had three farm animals, four groups, four farm, etc. Right? And you, you, so you shuffle all these up. Nobody, you didn't show anybody what their card was. Only that person knew. And then at the word go, everybody, so that was their label. Everybody had to make that sound until they found the other people in their group. So all the people who had chicken, all the people who were labeled chicken had to make chicken noises until they found the other chickens. All the people whose label said cow had to make cow noises until they found the, the other group that said cows, right? We live in a world and in a culture that I mean, part of part of human existence is wanting to identify, right, to be to be labeled and identified. Even if you're a person who says, don't label me, you're like the don't label me label, okay? Right? Even the nonconformists, like they all seem to group together in nonconformity. So we we gravitate towards a, a label of identity, maybe different labels. And what the gospel tells us is that the cross stands over and against all of those labels. What we saw last week was as we are, as, as God's people, if you are in Christ, you are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by your desires. Right? This is the raging debate right now within the church and in American culture. Am I def- is my identity, am I, am I the sum of my sexual desires? And the cross of Jesus says no. Now, the culture is going to say, yes, you need to label yourself based on what you feel, whatever, whatever your desires are. The cross of Jesus says, no, we are not identified with our sins. We are not identified simply with our desires. We are identified as the, with the one who has bought us, who has washed us, who has made us new. We are no longer slaves to our passions. We don't have to give in to sin. We can struggle against our sin. So now, this week, we're going to look at some other... Paul Paul begins to address some other issues relating to human relationships. So, if you will, join me in 1 Corinthians 7. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the one out of the rack there in front of you. It's on page 955. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's give attention to God's Word. 
Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at that time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God, our prayer is that, Lord, you would feed us. We are your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. God, would you feed us by your word? Help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us here. And Lord, would you transform and renew us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good old 1 Corinthians, making family conversations awkward since 55 AD. We had to get here sometime. Um, 
So Paul is now, so, so Paul for the first six chapters of the letter has been addressing needs that he was aware of in the church. So here's how Paul kept up his relationship with churches. It was with, it was through writing. Uh, this is the, in fact, this is what most of our New Testament is made of is letters from Paul or other apostles to the churches, right? Or to individuals. And so somebody has come to Paul um, with a message like, hey, here's what's going on in Corinth. Paul now sends a letter back to them. And he begins the letter by addressing some different things that he needed to address. But now he addresses some questions they had. And that's what kicks off this whole conversation about marriage, about singleness. We're going to look more at singleness next week. Um, but right now, Paul addresses some questions they have about marriage. And so if we can, if we get to all of the verses that I covered, that's going to be a big if. But um, the first, the first thing we're going to see is that marriage matters. And then the second thing that we saw in the second half of what I read is that your calling in Christ matters more. So marriage matters, uh, but your calling in Christ matters more. So, so what's the issue? What's the, what's the deal that Paul is, uh, is trying to address here? We have to be careful because we're only getting one side of a conversation. I don't know if you've ever walked into, uh, walked into a room and somebody was talking on the phone and, uh, you heard your, you overheard your name mentioned and you're probably like, what are they talking about? Who's on the, who are they talking to? Right? What, what's the, what's the other half of that conversation look, sound like? Right? Um, we only have one half of a phone conversation here. We only are getting Paul's answer to their question. So we're, we, we want to be careful with our speculation. But what it seems like is happening is that it appears that there are some in Corinth who are abandoning marriage or who are saying that because Jesus has come, then it would be better not to marry. Or if you're in marriage, that maybe that changes the how the relationship works, right? That um, that because this is the spiritual age and the physical, we're going to put that off. We don't really know. But what does seem to be happening is that people are saying, well, I don't know about marriage anymore. And if I'm in a marriage, do I need to get out of a marriage? And if. I'm married to an unbeliever. Does that matter? Right? So Paul is answering questions along those lines. And so even though we don't have the other half of the conversation, we can at least derive some principles from this conversation uh, that we can apply to ourselves. It is interesting that Paul starts out by saying, uh, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what it literally says. Um, it's, it's unclear whether... Paul is is saying that like that's Paul making that statement or if that's kind of a, a Corinthian slogan. We, we saw some of these last week in the last chapter where they say all things are lawful for me. We believe that's a, a Corinthian slogan that they were using to kind of define or justify their behavior. So we're not really sure. I think it's this is me personally. You, there's no way to know. I think it's a slogan. Because Paul seems to disagree a little bit with it. He sort of agrees, but he also disagrees, right? He says, basically, that no, there's room for marriage. There's room for sexuality inside marriage. So, um, and actually, it's interesting that this group would exist in the church, right? Because if you think about what we've talked about the past couple of weeks, and you remember what we've said about Corinth, that in Corinth, like Corinth would rival most college towns. As far as morality, very loose, Sexual norms all over the place, right? 
There doesn't seem to be any sense of agreed upon moral standard in the city of Corinth. And yet, so, so Paul has to address those people because there are some in the church who are living into that and Paul has to correct them. But now there seems to be another group within the church who are saying, up, oh, no sex at all, right? Bad idea. Don't do it. That's a really worldly thing. Avoid it, avoid it, avoid it. And Paul says, mm, that's a little bit extreme, right? Can you imagine a church so polarized as this one? Which is why it feels good to read First Corinthians sometimes. You can be like, all right, I'm doing okay. All right. Our church isn't as messed up as I thought it was. So Paul's talking to those people, right? He's talking to the people on the, on the far, far right who are saying, uh, let's be done with marriage. You know, this, this is, this is a thing for the world, not for us. So here's some things that Paul says. I'm just gonna make, uh, let's see, five, five points about marriage, kind of under this heading of marriage matters. First, some just things we draw here. First, we see that marriage is between one man and one woman. You look at verse two, in, in chapter seven, that he uses the words each and own with great emphasis, right? Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So this idea that there's one man and one woman monogamous relationship. Number two, so marriage is between one man and one woman. Number two, marriage is the place for sex, right? Paul talks about each man having his wife. That's what we call a euphemism. You can Google that later if you want to know the meaning of the word euphemism, okay? But he means more than just having a relationship with, okay? All right? So, Paul talks about each one having the other, right? He talks about rights, that the husband should give his wife her rights and likewise the other way, okay? And the, the phrase used there is actually kind of the idea of paying the debt of. So, um, Paul is saying that in marriage... Each spouse exists to meet the needs of the others. The, excuse me, the needs of the other. All right? Uh, that one, in a sense, owes a debt to the other. And that ties into this next point. Marriage, as Paul sees it, is radically equal. Radically equal. What do I mean by that? Why do I say radical? It would have been unheard of in Paul's day... In the Greek culture where Corinth was, or in the Jewish culture where Paul came from, it would have been unheard of for a teacher to say that a wife had authority over her husband. But Paul doesn't even check up, right? He says the husband belongs to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband. There's equality in marriage, right? That each spouse owes the rights to the other, right? In, in that day, and probably not too far off from ours. Um, well, it's a little bit different from ours. But in the first century, even in the Greco-Roman uh, wild city of Corinth, the husband would have been the only one with rights. He had a right over his body, and he had a right over her body, and he could do whatever he wanted. So Christian marriage is distinctly different from what from, from both of those social norms. If you, if you think, by, just by, kind of as a side note, if you think that the Bible is written to prop up social norms, traditional social norms, um, you're just not reading the Bible close enough. The Bible challenges social norms both then and now, right? Paul is saying that husband and wife are equal 
in this relationship, that they own one another, that they owe rights to one another. Which then leads to the second point. Not only is marriage radically equal, but marriage is also radically unselfish. There's some, and this is, this is probably the hardest point of all to live out, and if you're, if you're married, you know that it is. There are some who, when Paul speaks of rights and ownership, they envision a, a demanding husband pounding on the wall saying, woman, give me, give me what I deserve. That is not what Paul is talking about here. That is not what Paul has in mind. The vision here is of the one living for the other. Right? So, uh, the Bible challenges me. My, my first thought is not, what does she owe me, but what do I owe her? That's the language that Paul's using. That's the parallelism that Paul has in play here. Paul even uses the word deprive, right? The, which means to, to defraud or steal, to withhold the need of the other, taking something that belongs to them. That's Paul, Paul views a Christian husband and he says, you don't ever say, you owe it to me. You say, what do I owe you? That's, that's a gospel-centered marriage, right? Marriage is radically unselfish. And in a world that says... It's your body. You do what you want to. Right? That's, that's our, that's our day. Paul says, no, that's not how this works. In marriage, your body belongs to someone else. They have the say so. They have the authority. Again, a challenge in Paul's day, because in his day, the husband had all the authority, and a challenge in our day, because we, in our day, we, the, the sovereign self has all the authority. The individual is the one who's in charge. I get to do what I want to do. Paul says to both, he says, no, that's not how a gospel-centered marriage works. In a cross-centered, gospel-centered marriage, your body belongs to your spouse. That's who has the last word. So marriage is radically equal. Marriage is radically unselfish. And then he spends a good amount of time talking about how marriage is a lifelong commitment. Look at verse 10. He says a few things about singleness, and we'll address that in a later sermon. But look at, look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, it seems like there were some in the church who were saying, who were, who were saying, mm, should we just dissolve our marriages? Should we just, should we just step out of marriage? Is that a, is that an institution for an old era? Um, or it's possible, as he's going to talk about in a second, that they were married to an unbeliever. And so they were like, is this, this relationship going to defile me? Do I need to get out of this relationship because, uh, these, my, my spouse doesn't know Jesus? And Paul says, no. Right, Paul reaffirms what Jesus said about marriage in Mark chapter 10 and other places where Jesus tells us that God created this relationship, that it's God, marriage is from God, and that what God has joined together, man should not put asunder, right? You've heard that said in marriage ceremonies. 
What Paul is trying to tell them is, this is, this is a lifelong important relationship. You can't just lay it aside at your leisure. It cannot be discarded when it suits you. Or when it doesn't suit you. It's a major lifelong relationship. And so, we could say, it ought to be entered into with much prayer and much thought. Right? This is, this is why we do pre-marriage counseling. Because you are never dumber than when you are young and in love. Right? <clears throat> when you've got like the, the blinky doe eyes and that person can do no wrong. Right? You've got to tell people, hey, listen, and the, the wedding, the white dress, it's great, right? All that preparation is going in. It's going to be good. It's going to be fine. Let's talk about the marriage that comes after the fact, right? She won't be wearing that dress forever. And she's not going to look the same at 75 as she does right now, right? Um, you, we need to, we need to walk into that relationship with some sobriety, right? We need to, we need to take our friends who are entering into that just kind of aside a little bit and say, hey, good that you're excited. We want to celebrate that. Let's talk about what's to come. Let's talk about the marriage that follows the wedding. One of the analogies I use, you may not like it very much, but what I'll, what I'll tell young couples sometimes is our job in, in premarital counseling is to identify the landmines before you step on them. And when you step on them, because you will step on them, um, what do you do after the fact? Right After you have caused an explosion in your marriage, what are some ways to handle that? Right? We, we take marriage seriously and we want marriages to strive and we want marriages, uh, we want marriages to thrive and survive. And so the first thing that Paul is saying is don't lay aside your marriages. Uh, your conversion doesn't change your marriage like that. Uh, you don't lay aside this relationship at leisure. But what if I'm married to a non-Christian? What if I'm married to somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus? That would have been a really common issue in the early church because these are all first-generation Christians, right? They're adults. They didn't grow up in the church, right? Their day in that way is different from ours, from many of us anyway. Uh, they didn't grow up in the church. They've just heard the gospel and believed, and that means that probably for many of them, they were still married to someone who did not believe. And so they want to know, Paul, what do we do? Is this, is this relationship going to defile me, right? Am I not supposed to be uh, unequally yoked, as uh, another Bible passage says, to a non-believer? And there are two things that Paul says. The first, the first thing he says in verse 12 is stay in it as far as it depends on you. Stay in it as far as it depends on you. Don't leave the marriage simply because you believe and they don't. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now when Paul says that, that little parenthesis there, I, not the Lord, doesn't mean that Paul is now going off on his own opinion, right? That this is just kind of his shot in the dark. What he's saying is, Jesus didn't, didn't speak to this particular circumstance. And so, Jesus spoke to marriage in general. Now, I'm going to speak to this particular circumstance. And what I'm telling you is that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Same for any woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever. So stay in it as far as it depends on you. 
Some might ask, well then, am I sinning by being married to a non-Christian? Does this relationship defile me? Paul says, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a tricky passage. He says, actually, it's the exact opposite. Verse 14. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. What does he mean by that? There's a, there's a, there's a, about four different ways the New Testament uses that, that word sanctified, which is the word here. Paul is not saying that just being married to an unbeliever saves them or somehow gives them moral holiness. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying basically is this. Your unbelieving spouse is better off with you in the marriage. Their lack of faith does not defile you, but your faith will impact them. That's what he means when he says the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse. Right? That the home, the marriage, and the family are set apart. Right? They are, in a sense, consecrated for God. There is a spiritual benefit to a believing spouse staying in the marriage. There's a spiritual benefit to the children. Right? He says, otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That the children derive spiritual benefit from a believing parent. That's huge. Right? So, Paul says, stay in it because... It's of benefit to your family. And then he says, right, in verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether uh, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There's a gospel opportunity there if you stay in it. But the second thing is this. Stay in it as far as it depends on you. The second, he says, but if they leave, let them go. Paul says if they are unwilling to stay in the relationship then you don't have to fight them. You don't have to make war with them to to try to keep them in the marriage. If they want to leave, let them go, you are free. Let them go, you are free. You're not obligated to make them stay in the marriage. Now, those are just some some points on marriage. And we need to remember that Paul is addressing a particular situation in Corinth. And we are deriving some good principles from that situation. How we apply those principles in different situations, in different marriages, in different hard circumstances, that will differ. And so, what I've said are some some general principles, but where the rubber meets the road is often where it gets the stickiest, right? So we just have to, we want to take those general principles principles and apply them wisely. But here's kind of the overarching principle that Paul is, is, is living in. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. It is a gift from God. And when we live in it the way God intended, uh, when we strive to strengthen it according to God's design, it is a blessing to the church. It is a blessing to the people who are in it. But it is not the ultimate thing. And that's what the next section is about. Marriage matters... But your calling in Christ matters more. Look at what he says in verse 17. Only, it's interesting that he connects this with his, uh, with his talk on marriage. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul goes on to basically say this. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in when God saved you, You don't have to change those. 
Are you in a marriage to an unbeliever? Okay, don't seek to get out of it. He goes on and he talks about uh, being circumcised or uncircumcised, right? So there were some cases where Jewish men who had been circumcised, but they were in the Roman world, sought to surgically undo that. Don't know how, but it's in a book. I read it. Paul says, doesn't matter. Leave it alone. For a, for a Gentile, okay, well, if I'm, if, I'm a, if I'm a Gentile, do I need to become circumcised like a Jew? Paul says, no. No, no, no. The time for that is done. Jesus has come. So now circumcision, those don't matter anymore. What matters now is keeping the commandments, right? Uh, which, as we learn from other places, means loving one another, right? As Jesus has loved us. What if I'm a slave? Paul says, don't worry about it. You're not lesser in the kingdom simply because you uh, serve another human being. But, he does say this, if you have an opportunity to gain your freedom, do it. Right? Paul doesn't outright condemn the institution of slavery. Now, slavery in this situation looked very different from the way that we would come to practice it in the 18th and 19th centuries. So it, was a very, it, was a different, it was a different kind of institution. And yet, still, Paul says, if you can get free, do it. But if you're stuck there, because some slaves were, they didn't have the money to buy themselves out of slavery. They didn't have a family member who could come buy them out. Paul says, don't let it trouble you. Don't worry about it. Because you have freedom where it counts. You are free in the Lord. And to every person who is free, I say, you are a servant of Christ. You belong to Jesus. That's what counts the most. And then Paul says this. And I think it ties everything together nicely in verse 20. Verse 23, he says, You were bought with a price. That's the second time Paul has used that phrase. He used it back in chapter 6 in relation to using our bodies for sexual morality. Now he uses it in relation to our various callings in life. What does he mean? He means this. That because Jesus has died for us, and paid the debt that we owe, we are no longer our own. Jesus, at the cost of His his own blood, ransomed us from slavery. By By the sheer grace of God, we belong to God. Our bodies, our lives, our marriages, our singleness, all those things belong to Him. That grace changes everything. Grace takes those labels that we want to wear so much. Grace takes those labels that others place on us. The labels that society and culture want us to wear, and it places the cross right on top of them. And says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Now, what do we do? So I I read all those marriage principles. What, What do we do if our marriage is not what Paul what, what the Bible outlines for us. Kevin, I'm stuck in a, in a broken marriage. I'm stuck in an embattled marriage. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Even, even in the midst of that war, I want you to hear got the gospel hope that says that even that embattled, embittered marriage does not define you. 
your inability or your spouse's inability, whatever it is that's going on there, that, that is not your definition. Your definition, if you are in Christ, is Christ, the cross. And in that, we have hope. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this word, this hard word, but a good word. That we are not our own, we were bought with a price, we belong to you. That means you redefine and reshape the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see and understand our marriages, our callings in life. That we don't have to redefine our circumstances, but Jesus has redefined our identity. Would you help us to apply that to our lives and live out what it means? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.